Hey, y'all, we want to take a second here to go ahead and give a shout out to our favorite mortgage lender and the official lender of the Hunt podcast. That's Casey Burns. He's a mortgage broker with Prime Lending. I bought my house here in Colorado with Casey and I refinanced the property in Tennessee. And I was going to use Casey for that because I had such a great experience. And Casey told me, hey, man, like I'll be straight up with you. I can't. I can't match this other offer. So go with these other guys. Well, I went with those other guys and I regretted it. It was like a three month process for the refi. When I, when I bought my house here in Colorado, it was the easiest transaction for real estate I've ever had in my life. He handles everything. Like he has the heart of an educator, the heart of a teacher. And that's why we recommend him. I've known him for 10 years. I was best friends with his brother in college. I'm still good friends with Casey to this day. And we, we recommend him because of how good he is. So if you want to utilize Casey, give him a call, find out any information. Give him a shout at 919-710-1864. Or you can also reach him at email at casey.burns at primelending.com. And also go check out his website. Get all of his reviews at www.closewithkc.com. Thanks, y'all. You start a t-shirt company. You know, it's, it's they tell you, you have to do this. Um, and, or you do uh, it while so, you're still in. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. what I did. <laughs> well, it started while I was still in. It was it went well for me in the beginning. So that's actually why I got out. I, I thought I was going to stay in for, for 20 years, but uh, it, that started kind of taking off. And so I got out, moved to Colorado, moved to Colorado Springs. And we filmed that shit ranges don't say video up at uh, Leo Jenkins gym up in Denver there over in uh, the Highlands or wherever they call that part of town over there. And uh, yeah, that was like my first um, kind of like viral video. And it's funny because that one was all, humor, satirical, you know, uh, not very well made by any stretch, but it blew up. And now it's, you know, I've had plenty more million plus view uh, videos, but they're all like very serious topics, you know? So it's kind of weird that that's how I started off with, that was like the first thing I'd ever made with a camera. And now I do it all the time, but it's uh, the, the opposite end of the spectrum, you know? Yeah, I watched Valley Boys a while back uh, and didn't even realize, I didn't put the connection together until Derek told me you uh, were going to come on and I started doing a little bit of research and I was like... No, that Valley Boys thing, um, the, the written article as well as that video, that's kind of what launched Coffee or Die. I got approved for that embed uh, right, um, basically right as I was getting, you know, kind of pitching the concept. It wasn't called Coffee or Die at the time, but I was pitching this concept to Evan and the team and... Uh, and then, you know, I was just coming off of a previous embed with uh, NSOC Alpha in Afghanistan. And um, they kind of called back and were like, hey, what do you think about coming back over and doing some other stuff? And so I went over again with that. And that's kind of was like, hey, so um, this would be a pretty great thing to launch a new publication with, you know, because nobody was really getting that access at the time um, to, you know, a active duty special forces team that was an active, you remember at that time, that was when the military was trying to make it look like there was no Americans in combat over there. And so sending me over there and then I'm coming back with video footage of guys in firefights and stuff. It's like, okay, yeah, it's a little bit different than kind of what we've been being told is going on right now, but it was, it was big. That's what we launched the whole thing off of. And we've been off to the races ever since. Oh yeah. I remember right when that dropped, it was, it was really cool to see, that finally kind of out in the in the open because that was either wait what year was that uh that would have been spring of 2018 i think i think the video came out summer 2018 yeah so i had just gotten back from a rotation in afghanistan i was down at helmand at dwyer and uh mm -hmm. so it was cool to kind of see the 
that kind of pushed the light that there is actually fighting going on. Guys are still getting it, getting after and getting into it. Well, and that was the, the unique thing about that. When, you know, when they called back and I would specifically asked, um, are we recording right now or? Yeah, I went ahead and threw it on, but I can, oh, okay. if, I need, if I need to, just because this conversation is good. So if I need to edit anything yeah, yeah. out though. Just need to be aware of how I need to be phrasing certain things. Um, oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> uh, no, that, um, uh, you know, when I asked about, like, you know, what kind of stories I'd have access to over there was, you know, we had a conversation about it. And I kind of asked, her, I was like, well, I kind of want to go wherever there's so I, I'd like to tell the story of the like kind of the, the last Americans left fighting in Afghanistan in 2018. It's like, you know, it's weird saying this now because these last couple of months, everybody all of a sudden cares about Afghanistan. But in 2018, nobody could give a fuck less. Um, and I kind of wanted to do this story about, you know, this kind of forgotten war with its forgotten warriors and these guys left out fighting. And it's, you know, I, you know, talking about that, you know, we're at that point almost 20 years into the war and we still got guys out at remote outposts shitting in bags, eating two MREs a day, hoping for a supply drop once a week, you know, and, and still getting their knuckles dirty with uh, ISIS-K, you know, in that particular part. And I don't think a lot of people realized that was going on. I think most people thought of Afghanistan it was like, yeah, we got troops there. Even within the active duty military, they thought, oh, we got troops there, but they're all stuck on base doing nothing but cleaning the MWRs and you know, maybe that maybe the pilots are getting after it still, but there's not ground combat going on. And so you go over there and I remember the flight out there too, because you fly to, to get there. You know, when I came in, it's, uh, I flew into commercial side of H Kaya to Kabul and then take a taxi over to the resolute support headquarters. From there, you wait to get on a bird to uh, one of those contractor birds over to Bagram and then you set out Bagram for a while and wait for a ride to, to Jalalabad to Jabad and then from there you get on another flight that took you you know an hour and a half or so I think in the middle of the night out to this cop and you know the escort that I had with me I was like okay so you know you say this is where stuff's going on like how safe or how dangerous is this place you know like at the actual base like are they getting you know, uh, are they getting into it every day or is this like when they go looking for it or, or what is that? And he's like, I still remember to this day him being like, well, it's pretty safe there until it's not. <laughs> and I was like, okay, you know, we'll, we'll go with that. Um, so it's a, it's a great way to put it. Yeah. And you get out there and it's like, man, that first night, you know, they were, they were constantly sending, uh, mortars into the hillsides there. They were constantly dropping, uh, 250 and 500 pound bombs that that combat controller that was attached to that ODA man he was straight getting it he was probably the most he must have been the the envy of the entire U.S. Air Force special tactics community because this guy was just day and night calling stuff in and um yeah and you know, I felt like you know for my very short visit you know it basically you know, if I wasn't a reporter, you could call it war tourism. You know, I was there for such a short stay, but, um, you know, kind of culminated with going out and doing that uh, mission that, you know, they got into a little bit of a firefight. A bunch of Green Berets got their, their CIBs for the first time, which was kind of cool. Um, and uh, a couple of the um, militia guys that went in below them, they got blown up. Uh, one of them, at least one of them was killed. You know, it wasn't like the biggest firefight in the world, but it certainly wasn't nothing either, you know, and certainly ran kind of against the narrative 
that was kind of being put out into the public at that time. So real quick, let's let's pause and go ahead and, and run some introductions. Uh, I think it's a, be a great way to open. And then I want to jump right back in. I've got a couple of questions off uh, what you just said. But uh, everybody, if, <laughs> you should be tracking. I'm Luke. I'm the host of the Hunt Lifty Podcast. Today I'm here with uh, co-hosting with us is we've got Carter and Derek. And then we've got a special guest, uh, Marty. I'm going to butcher your last name, man. Go ahead and just kind of introduce yourself. Give a quick background. Yeah. Uh, so my name is Marty Scovland, Jr., um, I grew up in South Dakota. I joined the army when I was 18, um, was in the army for eight years and then got out and in a round, very roundabout way, ended up becoming a journalist or more broadly speaking, I kind of just consider myself a guy who likes telling stories. Um, but now, uh, these days I run coffee or die magazine for black rifle coffee company, um, and, uh, play a small part in free range American, um, and which is another publication we have. And I'm also currently procrastinating by being on this podcast with uh, finishing my next book, which is uh, tentatively titled Send Me, uh, which is a um, the story about Shannon Kent, which is a Navy uh, cryptologist special operator who was killed in Syria in 2019. So that's what I'm that's what I that's what I do. That's who I am. Um, yeah. And I appreciate you guys bringing me on. Oh, we're super glad to have you, man. But jumping back into kind of the story you were telling about when you uh, you were embedded with a special forces ODA in Afghanistan, 2018, when kind of the political narrative at the time was that the war was over and it was just stability operations, um, a lot of security mission, and there wasn't active combat going on. And so, what was that like with your background coming from Ranger Regiment as a special operations soldier, then going now you're getting a perspective from the like the journalism lens and how was that like, obviously you drew on a lot of your combat experience, but how was that different and how did your perspective shift and did you, what was, what was that like? Yeah. So, uh, that was actually my second, uh, embed in Afghanistan, um, as a reporter, the first one was the previous fall. And that was the big one for, for me, that was the big, like, Holy cow, I'm back and everything looks the same, but it's 10 years later. Cause I got back from my last deployment in battalion, um, in December, 2009, I want to say like right before Christmas, 2009. And so going over there for my first embed 2017, that's eight years later, everything looks the same. The rocks crunch un under your feet the same way. The, the defects look the same, the, you know, they still serve surf and turf you know, once a week, like all the stuff is the same, you know, the only thing that was different is like, now everybody's got multi-cam, which that was real Gucci back when I was on my last deployment, you know, we had multi-cam, but everybody else was still in those ACUs just about. And, uh, but now it was like, everybody had it, you know, and you notice that some of even the like conventional infantrymen, they had some stuff that again was kind of Gucci back uh, when I was in, but now is more commonplace. You know, everybody has a PEC-5 now, everybody's you know, just stuff like that, you know, but for the most part, everything felt so similar. So you go through this thing where it's like, man, you it simultaneously feels like it's been a hundred years in between like a lifetime ago or a different lifetime altogether. And like it, like you just left yesterday or you're just back for your next regular rotation and no time had passed at all. It was those simultaneous feelings. And, um, kind of one of the things that I had to reckon with is you almost, when you get over there and you're around guys and, you know, I can still, 
you know, because I come from the community, I can talk like that. And it was mostly around special operations guys. That's who my embed was with, was with Anasoc. And, um, the, uh, it, you know, you want to fall back into like thinking you're one of the boys, but like, you're not, you know? And there's a few things that that kind of becomes really apparent in, but you get lulled into this sense of like, yeah, I'm just back. It's deployment. I'm like everybody else, but you're not, you're getting put up. You know, there's some things that are kind of subtle, like, oh, you get put in like the VIP barracks for like visiting generals and shit like that, that, that have all the nicer, you know, all the outlets work and the sheets are semi-fresh and all that sort of stuff. You know, um, you're, uh, I had one instance where a guy was like, hey, just come in real quick. I'll, I'll show you around. And it was into the talk. Well, you know, as you know, in a talk, you need to have a clearance to go in there, especially in special operations. And I didn't think anything of it. But as soon as we walked in, like whoever this guy's superior was like, what the fuck do you think you're doing? The guy's a reporter. Why would you bring him in here? And I'm like, guys, I've seen all these maps before. You know, I didn't argue. It's like, oh, hey, guys, no, I didn't mean anything by it. You know, I was super cool about it. You know, but there's a few things like that that get kind of thrown in your face. Like, hey, you're not one of the boys anymore. You got out. You hung up your beret. You hung up your uniform. You know, you don't, you're not in the club anymore. You know, it's kind of like, thank you for your service, but get the fuck out of the talk, you know? And um, so it's just, so there was a little bit of that to reckon with. But also from my side as a reporter, where it's like, hey, I'm here to do a specific job now. Like, I'm not in uniform. I'm not in the military anymore. And I'm here to tell a story and do you know, kind of be that fourth estate for the American people for, frankly, and you see these, you know, what happened in the last couple of months with the withdrawal of Afghanistan, be a voice for everybody that served there and feels like things, you know, didn't end right or went on too long, you know, whatever. So you have your duties now, you had your duties as a soldier uh, then, and now you have your duties now as a reporter, as a journalist. And so that was a little bit weird for me to reckon with. And just other things too, like when, when, you know, the first time I flew into Kabul on commercial air, every time I'd ever flown into, whether it was Afghanistan or Iraq, it was on a C-17. It was the same thing every time. I left Savannah, lay over in Romstein, Romstein, uh, you know, get a cold cut trio from the subway at Romstein, get back on the plane, one more Ambien, wake up in either Balad or Bagram, depending on which country you're going to. And then from there, a bird out to wherever you were going to spend your deployment. Flying in on an Emirates flight, into Hamid Karzai International Airport, picking up your bag, and then waving a taxi down. And like, by the way, I've literally never been outside of the wire in Afghanistan before without full kit on and very well armed with a bunch of other dudes that are also in full kit and very well armed, you know. And now I'm just out there with a duffel bag doing like the duffel bag drag, you know, through the parking lot at H. Kaya and, you know, no body armor on me no weapons on me, nothing, and just like, salam alaikum, can I get a fucking cab ride over to Resolute Support? Please don't sell me to the Taliban or ISIS, <laughs> you know? Um, it was strange. Like, you really, like, man, this is strange. You know, you're way outside your comfort zone of what you think is safe. And um, what's the interesting thing about it, too, is this is why I respect so many conflict reporters is because for them, this is, like, completely normal. You know, they routinely live without the safety net that we kind of have in the military and routinely have to fly into war zones like this and bed with guerrillas, militias, things like that to where their allegiances change by the day. And you just kind of hope that you're staying on their right side. Like there are conflict reporters that do some extremely shady shit. And me going over there and just having to take a taxi cab over to, 
taxi cab over to the U.S. military and then live on a U.S. military base. That is the most vanilla version of what a conflict reporter does that's even possible. So I definitely don't want to make myself sound out to be like some badass conflict reporter because I'm not. Um, but uh, that was, you know, there was a lot of things that's just that really was like, okay, you're, this is different. This is different than what I experienced before. This is a different version of Afghanistan. Uh, and same when I went to Iraq, um, went back there, like, even though it was like Kurdistan, it's not real. It's not like I was rolling around Baghdad or anything like that, but like, it was just like, oh, this is different. I'm walking around, going out to restaurants, drinking alcohol, sitting with Iraqis, like going to a civilian hotel. Like I'm pretty sure the Iranians know I'm here. And if not, they're following me. Like, it's just a really, really strange uh, position to be in when you live that former life in the military. Yeah, that's that's wild. Um, absolutely wild. I can. I, I thought thought about that on my deployments. Is just like a. You, you do. You feel like you're kind of in a bubble. Like if you're outside the wire, you're full kit. You've got a you know a platoon with you. You're kind of ready to roll. Like what would it be like to kind of be out there? Just when I was thought when I'd see some of the contractors rolling to and from doing like their own thing, like, hmm, it's almost yeah. liberating, but probably terrifying in the same regard in, in some ways. Yeah, I, um, you know, you know, Afghanistan, when you go there, it's like you're still very aware of like how dangerous it is. Whereas like, you know, when I went to Iraq, when I went back there and flew into Erbil and, you know, it's still the tea barriers everywhere. You still see the U.S. military rolling around there in convoys and stuff, but like you're going to a hotel you're eating, you're out just among the population, you know, walking around at night. I remember the first time I walked around at night in Erbil, uh, you know, just, you know, going to a restaurant or something. I was like, man, I have never been out at night in Iraq before. And again, it's Erbil. It's not like this is Baghdad or Mosul or something like that, right? It's Erbil. But like, it still looks like Iraq. It still looks and feels like every place, every street corner is like, man, I been here before it feels like i hadn't because we weren't doing raids in Erbil, but like it felt that way you know and it just was so strange and looking at the different doors and you almost default back into that like oh yeah is that a push charge is that a you know like you know metal frame wood frame what are we you know you almost default back into some of these things that you used to have to think about when you were out and but it's like no man i'm just out with normal people right now eating at a restaurant sitting on the street like it's wild. <laughs> I don't think it's probably wild if you never had that experience in war there. But like go, when you do have that as like your only context for a country and then you come back as just a normal civilian that's just doing normal civilian shit, like it completely reframes how you see that country. And now for me, both Iraq and Afghanistan, more so Iraq though, because like Afghanistan, I still went back and got into a freaking firefight. You know, it's not much has changed, right? Um, but Iraq, it's like, oh man, I've actually had these like really positive, I went hiking in Iraq that wasn't for a mission. You know what I mean? Like that is, Iraq is no longer a country that I've only been, in, that I only went to, to go to combat for. It's now this country that I've gone to, again, if I wasn't there reporting, you'd almost call it like recreational, you know? Uh, it just, it, it completely changes how, and all of a sudden any negative experiences that you've had there in the past are kind of uh, muted a little bit because you just see everything in a different way you know the only way I'd ever seen it man I can probably count on one hand how many times I went out during the day when I was there uh, you know on deployments you know and to just go walk around during the day there and just you know again no kit no weapon no nothing like you're just trusting that humans are generally good even in Iraq and 
you know, hopefully everything's going to be okay. And, and it was, you know, sometimes they're not right. And you hear about stuff that happens. Sometimes things are not okay. And you shouldn't be uh, lackadaisical with your situational awareness when going to any of these countries. But yeah, it just completely reframed how I saw some of these places um, from my time when I was in battalion. I was definitely one of those guys when I was in battalion who kind of felt like, well, if they're not a bad guy, they probably know a bad guy, so fuck them. You know, like, that was kind of the attitude that I had with with some caveats there. There were some things that I uh, felt bad about um, and to this day kind of feel bad about certain things where you read some things that are kind of shove it in your face that, no, hey, these are all human beings here, you know, that just live very different lives than we live here in America. But for the most part, I was very much like, you know, and I think you kind of have to be in that line of work. You you kind of have to. Like, you, you're only job, like, I've told this to people before when they like to, they want to ask about experiences there about like, oh, you know, how are the people? And did you, did you ever, you know, like in the movies, give a chem light to a kid or, you know, something like that. And it's like, man, all I did was like, our sole purpose when I, you know, uh, the units that I was in was, was violence. Like, we were a direct action. Like, I didn't do presence patrols. I didn't do convoys around the city just to see what's going on. I didn't stand on a street corner and play soccer with the kids. I didn't do any of that. I had none of that experience. The only Iraqi or uh, Arabic or uh, Pashtu that I knew was like, put your hands up, shut the fuck up. Like, all those phrases that you get told, like, that was the only bit of the language that I knew. So, and you kind of have to be that way, you know, I think to be successful or, or at least prevent yourself from like fucking yourself up too much. Um, and I want to caveat this with like, I'm not like, I was not like the biggest, baddest ranger by any stretch, but just the nature of that job. I think that you have to be in that mindset. Whereas I think when you go back over as a reporter, well, and especially I had, like I said, a good eight years in between where I kind of, you have time to, you have time and separation from doing that type of work, but also you grow up a little bit, right? Like I did all of my deployments between the ages of 18 and 24. And I'm sure there were older guys that I served with that were much more nuanced in their thinking because they were older. But I was, again, all my stuff was between 18 and 24. And you're, the way you see the world is just not, you know, you want fucking violence everywhere. That's all you want to do. You want to have, you want to drink violently. You want to fuck violently. You want to fight violently. You want to, everything is violence all the time, especially in that unit, you know? Whereas I think when you get out and you start to, you know, you get married, you have a kid, stuff like that, it's, you know, you start to see the world in, in different ways. You start to ha you start to think about things more nuanced. And so I think I'd started to make that transition before I went back to Afghanistan. Um, but certainly when you go back over there, and, and I never had, you know, particularly Afghanistan, I never had much exposure to Afghan troops before. I mean, we would have the mandatory five, like, APU attached to us. We never talked to them. They didn't do shit. We just, they pulled security while we, you know, they had, I, I literally never talked to any of them. Never had any interaction with them, anything like that. Very different than our special forces uh, brethren who have much experience with the culture and the people and the, uh, you know, uh, allied um, uh, nations and all that sort of stuff. I had none of that exposure. So going over there now to do stories on Afghan commandos, on the special missions wing, on the GCPSU and some of these other um, units over there, like it was like, oh, I'm now interacting. You know, I was like interviewing Afghan generals and and things like that. And it's like, man, th this is more of a cultural experience in just a couple of weeks over here as a reporter than I ever had 
when I was in battalion. And so, you, yeah, you kind of, I don't know if it was that I had to force myself to think differently. You just start to think differently because you're exposed to things that you weren't exposed to before. And you just can't, you can't do your job as a reporter if you just dehumanize everything. Like, you can't, you just, that's not your job. Even if you're interviewing like an enemy soldier, like if I were to sit down and interview a town, like you have to find empathy somewhere in order to get them to talk to you and give you what you need as a, you know, I wasn't like an intelligent, I wasn't like a human or anything like that. But I imagine that's a lot along the lines of what they needed to do when they were performing, you know, their interrogations and things like that. It's just, you can't do your job without uh, establishing a relationship and, and all that. So yeah, I would say I definitely, there was a shift that happened. I don't know that it all happened on those trips. Uh, I think it started at, you know, in between, um, but definitely probably came a full 180 degrees, uh, 180 degrees around uh, once I started doing these embeds and, and really talking with people. And yeah. When I think that's what makes you a good storyteller is the, your ability in that evolution uh, from when you were 18 to 24 is that you can actually understand the, the human element because if you can't see that depth and you can't like capture that in either film or in like the written word, then the story just is, it, it's, it's almost like a textbook. You're just reading like something like when you can actually get the depth and understand that there is nuance to this, right? Like the difference between, an 18-year-old American soldier and an 18-year-old Taliban soldier is probably very little other than geographical location and then, you know... One knows how to read and write better. Exactly. Education and then, you know, financial stability and options in life. So, uh, yeah, when you start to understand that and, like, that, I could kind of see that in, the, in my evolution from my first deployment when I was a brand-new infantry platoon leader and things were pretty slow for a conventional army guy. And all I wanted to do was get into a gunfight and like go fight versus when I went back. And now I'm a staff officer in a talk in a battle space. Uh, I had a lot more interaction with our ANA counterparts. And like, you realize that there's not a whole lot of difference. And even like looking at some of the Intel stuff with the Taliban and like what's going on, if the roles were reversed, right. And it was a, a foreign force and where I'm from in Southwestern Virginia, like I'd probably be doing the same shit. Yeah. Yeah. I think that that's, um, and shit, man, and that's probably one of the things we, sh we probably should have been doing more of throughout this entire war, right, is, hey, how are these guys approaching this? You know, we don't have to agree with them or their outlook on life or, or anything like that uh, to understand how they're probably approaching this problem, you know, of having a foreign occupation force there that they don't want there. In the case of the Taliban, I think there was plenty of Afghans that wanted us there. We've seen that, right? Uh, there's also plenty that didn't, you know. And um, just being able to empathize with that and not just reduce them to cave dwellers that can't speak the language or whatever. Like, no, there's, you know, they've kind of proven right at this point that they know how to, they're not dumb people. They're still evolved human beings, you know, and there's a difference between that, you know, 19, 20 year old that grew up in rural Afghanistan has never been exposed to anything and the people that are in charge of strategy and tactics at the Taliban, at the higher Taliban echelons there, those, those are not dumb people. And some of them have Western education, you know, and I think that there was probably not enough of just recognizing that, uh, you know, some people did. I don't think enough did. Yeah, I think you're absolutely correct. And I think, I think we really underestimated too. There's just the Taliban's will 
and like their long-term thinking. I think that's something we see when we study culture in general between the West and like Eastern cultures. And I think it was early on in the war. Uh, there was some. It was right after we declared, you know, the uh, Taliban was overthrown and the Northern Alliance moved through with with Fifth Group guys and the CIA. And it was this huge victory. We did it so quickly, right? The America's great. And one of the Taliban generals that had, had left or warlords had said something to the effect of like, you guys. You guys think in years, we think in lifetimes, like my children will fight you, my grandchildren will fight you, like we've always been fighting, something to that effect, paraphrasing yeah. it. But it's that's really powerful. And when you look back on it, it was just such foreshadowing to where we're sitting today. And it's if we had looked and maybe studied a little bit more long term, the Soviets, the, our lessons learned, uh, what should have been lessons learned in Vietnam, and then applied it, like maybe we wouldn't be where we're sitting right now. I think too many people thought in terms of today, this week, or this deployment instead of the overall war. And that was the big complaint the entire time, right? It was like, what's the strategy here? What's the criteria for winning? There never really was that. Everybody was just like, hey, this is my deployment. And you thought in terms of deployments of just being successful on that deployment. And everybody did that. I think everybody did that from even at the general four-star general officer level, where it's like, hey, I'm here. If I'm the commander in charge of Afghanistan, we're going to do everything we can as long as I'm in charge. But I don't think anybody was thinking, well, what about after that? You know, like what, like what, what are we going to do to win? You know, who's going to win here? You know, and that extends, you know, ultimate responsibility. I think it falls on uh, politicians and how they hold the military accountable. And I think Afghanistan is the best example of why the military needs civilian oversight. Um, Like civilian oversight failed the military in these last 20 years. They just let us keep going to work. Man, I remember in 2009, my uh, fourth deployment, when I was in Iraq and the uh, Status of Forces Agreement was signed uh, in January 6, 2009, I think it was, um, with Iraq. And all of a sudden, it kind of felt like the war there was. And it's like, man, this is fucking bullshit. I don't want to be in the army if I'm not going to war. Like, this is dumb. I don't. What are we going to do now? Just train? Who fucking trains? That's just doing my life right now. Yeah. You know, and, and so when you if you leave it up to the military, it's like, yes, we will perpetually go to war. You know, there might be a few older guys that have been around and are like, yeah, maybe we should, you know. But for the most part, the majority of the military, again, violence. The majority of the military is 18 to 24-year-olds that want to do everything violently. And so I think that there needs to be that adult in the room, Congress, that comes in and says, uh, hey, guys, when are we going to be done with this? When are you going to be done? You know, when are we going to win? What are we going to do to win? What do I need to give you so that you can win? How do we win? When are you going to win by, you know, or what are the conditions that you're setting for winning? Like, that we never had those conversations, you know? And so just deployment after deployment. Okay, how am I going to be successful on this deployment, you know? I don't know. No, I mean, that's that's all spot on. And I think we could honestly probably talk for hours unpacking this, this whole thing. And I, <laughs> for, for time's sake, I, I do want to get to some, some more topics, especially... Uh, just yeah. backtracking prior to uh, Coffee or Die and you, you know, linking up with Evan. Um, let's let's back it up to you as a, you know, you're a Ranger Regiment, you know, soldier full of piss and vinegar wanting to, you know, fight, fucking drink. But then you start having this shift where you see some of the entrepreneurial stuff. You start to have some success uh, while you were still in and that led you to start to transition out. What did that look like? Because that's something I can definitely relate to as I start this podcast, this company, as I'm still on active duty, kind of looking towards yeah. the door now and what's next for um, me. Yeah. So I, uh, you know, what kind of started it all was I was, I have into this day, I still have this. It's not like a dream or something. It's a conscious, just kind of recurring memory that I have of, 
uh, being in the ready room uh, on my fourth deployment in Iraq. And that particular platoon was just absolutely stacked. I mean, we had staff sergeant Bravo team leaders. Like it was, you know, at every level, our platoon sergeant is now, you know, serving at some of the highest levels of special operations. Many of the other guys are also serving at the highest levels of special operations. Like the privates all had like, with, save for a couple, like two or three new guys, all the privates had at least a deployment or two under their belt. Like, dude, this was like a stacked platoon and we had a cool mission. The fight had started to transition over to Afghanistan, but it was still pre-SOFA Iraq. And so we were the half asset uh, helicopter assault force, um, for those not familiar, um, we're the half asset for the entire country of Iraq. So we're based out of the Balad airfield, but man, we were hitting targets in Al Qaim one night, Mosul the next night, Baghdad the next night, Tikrit the next night. Like it was fucking awesome. Like it was everything that you thought you would do as an airborne ranger, like jump on helicopters in the middle of the night, go land on rooftops, ran, land in fields, ride on the X, run into house. Like it was awesome and uh i remember one night um getting ready for i don't remember what the mission was nothing notable happened this night you know i just remember pausing in the ready room as we were getting ready for another mission everybody's kidding up doing radio checks and stuff and i remember just stopping for like 30 seconds and just taking it in and i don't know why it took me four deployments i don't know why it took me till this mission but it's just like holy shit like and i think about it right now and it gives me chills like as i'm telling you this but um it's kind of like holy shit like how lucky am I, you know, like how, like, these are some of the most elite warriors that America will ever put on a battlefield, you know, and literally, like I said, many of these people went on to very high levels of, of the special operations community, like, these were some of, you know, I may not have been the best of the best, but man, I was standing shoulder to shoulder with some of the best of the best, you know, and I just kind of took that in for a minute and just, you know, it seared it into my memory. And so um, fast forward four or five years later, and I'm coming up on uh, what I thought was going to be my re-enlistment. I wanted to reclass to um, to be a crypto linguist and go into a different part of special operations. And I'd taken the D-Lab and everything and was all set to go. Like, we're going to go to Monterey and hang out for like a year and a half while I learned some fucking language. And then probably... You know, I wanted to go to Stuttgart for the, go to 110 and be like one of their, you know, uh, SOD A guys or something like that. And then from there, go on to a particular selection that I wanted to go to. And, um, you know, I had this whole plan, but I, you know, one night I'm like, you know, halfway through like a 12 pack or something and have this, you know, thinking about this memory and I decided to write it down. And, um, when I got done with it and I just kind of titled it the Ranger, you know, and, uh, when I got done, I was like, oh, this is kind of cool. You know, I don't know. Some of the guys might like this. And I posted it online and it kind of took off. I'd be, like by like the next day or two days later, I had all these guys reaching out to me like, man, can you put this on like a shirt or like a poster or something? And I ended, ended up getting word that some guys uh, back in battalion were like making their privates read it and being like, this is what it means to be a fucking ranger and all this other stuff. You know, it's like, holy shit, this really got out of hand quickly. Uh <laughs> You know, and so, yeah, I started making a couple of t-shirts. I put that thing that I wrote on a canvas and sold that. And, you know, uh, it just did really, it did well enough in that like six months that I ended up calling off my re-enlistment in getting out of the army and moving to Colorado and trying to, that, that company was called Blackside Concepts um, and trying to do that full time. 
and that kind of started my evolution. I don't, I think at that time I thought that I was going to be this like business owner and entrepreneur and all this other stuff. And, but I hadn't realized what my true, and it should have been obvious, right? I wrote something and it did well. It should have been obvious at that point, like, Hey, this is what you're good at. Do this, you know, write more. But I didn't, I tried, you know, making a bunch of t-shirts and trying to do again, what you've seen done literally a thousand different times at this point. Right. Um, as far as that kind of business model, you know, veteran business, I just got out, I'm going to start a company sort of model. And, um, you know, you start that company, you're like, oh, well, I need a, a blog to like help advertise this. And so I start writing for that. Probably a similar thing for you, man, where you're like, oh, I need a podcast, right? Like it's, um, you know, and, you know, through the blog, like we started these blogs, the Havoc Journal and Hit the Woodline. And um, those were both within short order getting millions of views per month, you know, and, uh, and, you know, you know, fast forward a couple years, my wife gets unexpectedly pregnant and, uh, you know, money is tight. Um, and by tight, I mean, we were moving our Honda CRV to different parts of the, uh, apartment parking lot area that were not in front of our apartment so that the repo truck that was coming through looking for us every day couldn't find it. Uh, money was that tight. And we just, at, at some point, you know, with all that, you're like, wait a sec, what am I doing here? Like, and at that point, I published a book that had done well. I put out two uh, movies, a short film and a documentary that had won film festivals. I was running these successful blogs. And at one point, I think I just had the realization of, wait a second, I'm not meant to, like, sell fucking t-shirts and try to become some, like, the next, like, Ranger Up or something. Uh, like, I'm a good storyteller. Like, I'm a good writer. Like, I can, like... This is what I need to be focusing my efforts on. Right now, it's a shotgun blast. I need a fucking rifle, you know? Um, and so that's, I had that realization. So we kind of just broke up the company. You know, Havoc Journal still out there. Charlie Faint runs that. Um, and, uh, you know, some of the some of these things that we created still kind of exist out there. You can still see one of the documentaries. The book's still available. All that sort of stuff. But I kind of left all of that behind very abruptly. And my wife and I, um, you know, our you know, we were kind of going through issues and she had this idea one day she came across on Instagram, like these people living out of a, a van uh, or a teardrop teardrop trailer was the specific uh, scenario. She was like, man, it would be so cool just to like get away from everything and go do this. And I kind of, I don't know if I called her bluff or what, but I was like, I would fucking 100% do that. And in my head, I was like, one, I've always wanted to travel the country in a van. That sounds awesome. Two, uh, that would be perfect for just honing my craft as a writer. I, I I knew enough to know that there was a lot I didn't know, if that makes sense. And so taking that time where we take the pressure of money off of us, of like paying rent and all this stuff, and you just got to put gas in the van and pay for food, that's it, you know? Um, and then I could just really learn, you know, take on a bunch of freelance gigs, perfect my, or, or at least try to professionalize myself as a writer and as a storyteller. And, you know, and so we kind of decided, okay, let's sell all of our stuff. Let's fresh start, sell everything. We put a couple of things into storage, like my class A's and a few, like just things that were emotionally significant, but literally just a five by five storage unit. I mean, it was not a lot. We got rid of our TV, our furniture, fucking everything. Um, and, uh, and then, yeah, bought a 96 Ford Econoline and went on the road with our one-year-old daughter and our dog. And uh, the kind of the um, thought process was, well, if we can't make it work in a, you know, in a van, there's no place to storm off to when you have a, an argument with your spouse. So if you can't, if you can make it work in a van, you can make it work anywhere. Um, 
And so, yeah, so we did that. We went and traveled to 44 different states. I really, I, I freelanced for a ton of different publications. I wrote a screenplay, um, which definitely helped me hone my narrative storytelling skills, which helped me in my big, longer narrative journalistic pieces, actually. Um, I, anybody that wants to be a writer, I highly recommend learning how to write a screenplay or that structure, and you can apply it to prose. Um, but anyways, yeah, we did that. We come out of that, you know, a year later with, uh, you know, I'm a much stronger writer. I have, you know, money producing writing gigs. Uh, our marriage is fixed and stronger than ever before. And now the only problem was my dad was fucking dying. So we had to cut that van trip short by like uh, two months and uh, immediately drive back to South Dakota where I'm from and uh, help out over there. But I continued to build on that foundation that I established while out on the road and kept writing for places. I, you know, went out on assignment to the Standing Rock oil pipeline protest and wrote a massive feature that got a ton of attention. I got cast for a History Channel show, uh, did that, um, was writing a bunch of stuff. I broke the story about the first female ranger uh, in the ranger regiment. Um, you know, I did, I did a bunch of stuff and I went on a, an embed to Afghanistan, that first one. And then that all just kind of catapulted from there into... You know, just one thing kept leading to another, and I just kept going and not saying no to anything and saying yes to everything and, you know, doing, giving my 100% at everything that I did, you know, and um, and then eventually, uh, you know, I'd already known Evan, and, you know, and Matt Best and those guys for a while, you know, going back to my Black Side Concepts days, and, um, you know, eventually one night we had, I had a conversation with Evan, and he's like, you know, let's, we're thinking about starting like a new media company, you know, you got ideas, and so a couple months later, um, uh, I came down and, you know, kind of pitched my concept for this new kind of media division. And that is what Coffee or Die is today, you know. So, yeah, that, that's kind of the whole genesis of military to where I'm at today. And ever since I started Coffee or Die, it's just been off to the races every day. We've went from just me to me and a managing editor that I hired to now we've got like 25 people, two publications and, you know. Um, yeah, it's just, it's wild. It, it's absolutely that, wild. That's unbelievable, man. I mean, you kind of glossed over some of that, but <laughs> your writing accolades are unbelievably impressive. I mean, I, I was impressed with the short story and the, and the, and the films, and then you hit, you, you know, oh my gosh, all those, all those writing accolades are unbelievable. What was your, I guess my question is I've recently overturned this kind of interest in writing. Um, and Luke through HLE's given me an outlet to write articles about things I'm genuinely interested in. I've always enjoyed writing. And I guess Luke and I both being from Appalachia, being a good storyteller is like the highest accolade someone can get up here in the mountains. I mean, if, if that's on my gravestone, I'm, I'm a, I'm a happy man. And just listening to you talk, you are an unbelievable storyteller. I, I could listen to you talk forever. What was your relationship <laughs> like maybe prior to actually, you know, putting that, putting reporter or writer or storyteller on your resume what was your your relationship with with writing like when you were younger man i think you look back on it and i feel like the writing was on the wall but i just was not it was like it was written in uh you know invisible ink or something like that it was always there i just couldn't see it but i look back and man i was writing stuff all through you know elementary middle and high school you know and I, I read constantly. I was that kid in elementary school that was reading like way above his grade level. I loved reading, you know, and um, 
And I think that's largely what has helped me these days is I was well read from a young age. You know, I read a lot then more than I do now, unfortunately, just time becomes a factor when you're, you know, uh, and, um, yeah, so I, I feel like there was the, the writing was always on the wall there. Um, I just never really recognized it. Um, yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't have called myself a writer back then. I, didn't do particularly well in English classes. It was kind of like a B or C student in English class, you know, it, um, you know, I read the news a lot, you know, I, my dad was big on read the news, read, read at least one story out of the newspaper every day. And, um, you know, and like I said, I read a lot of books. I loved Tom Clancy. I loved those Vietnam memoirs. I loved, you know, I loved all that stuff. Um, you know, I read a lot of R.L. Stein back when I was in elementary school, those goosebumps and, um, you know, yeah, like I said, looking back on it in retrospect, it was very clear that I would end up where I'm at right now. But I also hate it because I didn't see it. And I think about all those deployments where I sat around doing nothing when I could have been working on this stuff. I could have come out of the military with this just super impressive portfolio. And those years I wasted running black side concepts. And again, I can't really say that I would change anything because, man, everything kind of led to one thing over the next. But if I would have just known I wanted to be a writer or a storyteller or a filmmaker, any of that stuff right from the get go. Holy cow, my concentration of effort could have been so much more so much earlier. And I just think about all the catch up I had to do, you know. Um, and to this day, I still feel like I'm playing catch up in some regard. And, you know, you could argue that I'm further along at this age than a lot of people get um, uh, ever, you know, doing combat embeds and stuff like that. I don't know. But like, um, I just yeah, I wish I would have seen it earlier on. And I, I, I just, I didn't, but you know, I guess, you know, I'm a little bit of a believer and everything happens for a reason. And, you know, if maybe if I had started off that way and didn't get those other lessons, you know, I think my, the things that I picked up as a trying to run a small business definitely helped me now in the business side of running a publication, you know, budgets and the realities of business. And, you know, there's a lot of people that I think get into a creative field and just have no idea of anything of business. Well, I actually went through that with being a small business owner. So I understand the consequences of some things and what it means to hire somebody, what it means to fire someone budgets and uh, P and L and you know, all that sort of stuff. It, it just, um, so again, I think everything happens for a reason, but I just, I had no clue. And it was almost kind of weird. I was almost ashamed when I started to make that transition of like, well, do I really get to call myself a writer? You know, like, is that, and then when it came to like calling myself a reporter or a journalist, it was kind of like one, I don't know if I'd earned that title yet. And you come from the military and the military, there's very clear cut, defi very defining things of like, whether you get to call yourself something or not, you get a certificate and a badge or a beret, or, you know, there's like no yeah, doubt in your mind of whether you can call yourself this, that, or another, right? Like the military makes it very, very clear. Um, and uh, so now it's just, you know, in the civilian world, there's not really that, you know, unless you're a doctor or a lawyer, right? Like you have, again, it's very clear cut, very defined. And uh, so when I, and, and then you have that added thing of calling yourself a journalist or a reporter, there's almost, it's almost like a dirty word, especially within the military community, because people have the, this way that they see journalists, um, which in some ways is fair. So in a lot of ways, I don't think, I think is very unfair. Uh, I just don't think people realize how big the profession is and, how many people call them, you know, yeah, that's a whole other topic. But so I was kind of grappling with that a little bit. And um, yeah, but at some point, I just kind of was like, Nope, you know what? I'm a fucking storyteller. That's what I am. I do journalism. I am a reporter. I am a filmmaker. 
I am, I'm a bunch of these things. I'm a father. I'm a, you know, there's all these different titles. The thing that if you just ask me, like, you know, like Spartans, what is your profession? Like, I'm a storyteller. I'm the fucking guy with the eye patch that's like trying to tell all, you know, the one that makes it out of there and tries to tell all the other guys' stories. You know, that's kind of how I see myself now. You know, I'm not the cool guy anymore. I just tell fucking stories about the cool guys. That's the way I see it. No, that's awesome. And it's, it's really cool to hear that story of evolution and how that came. And I think you're, you're spot on with, you know, like not only from the networking side, you linking up with Matt and Evan and obviously that paid dividends down the road, but there is a level of, you've got to get those stair steps to kind of end up where you're going to be. And whether I know like it's, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. Like that's why I'm kind of dabbling with you know, this whole deal is because I know that with the war winding down and everything else, like I'm not, I'm short time in the army. I, I know I've, 20 years isn't going to be for me. And so as I try to figure out what's next, I need to have all these little things to figure that out. And especially with, because we kind of, when we are in the army, you know, we spend the first decade of our formative years, like you're kind of in a bubble and you don't have to make any real true life decisions because it's made for you. You know, even like I went to, we went to college and, and became an officer and all that, but like that was still dictated to me. I got contracted when I was 18. I knew I had to graduate. I got a D for a degree, got infantry, did what I wanted to do, went on and like, just keep telling me what to do and I do it throughout. And so we don't get that same or we're not forced to make those same decisions that I think a lot of young people are. And so we got, we kind of got to bounce around and figure that out and get there on our own in our own way. Yeah. I think it's like, I think that's kind of a parable for life in general where like, guess what? Those 23 year olds that graduated college and went out into the workforce don't know what it's like to go to war or do some of the things that we did. We also don't know what it's like to graduate into a failing economy and, you know, have this degree you just paid six figures for and now is, you couldn't fucking wipe your ass with it. And, you know, we don't know that, you know, fucking guys don't know what it's like to be a girl. Girls don't know what it's like to be guys, you know, freaking it just, you know, anything, right? It's, I think that comes down to that empathy and kind of what we were talking about earlier with putting yourself in those other people's shoes, whether they're Afghans, Iraqis, or just your fellow Americans on just like, man, it's not us versus them. It's just people have wildly different life experiences. Nothing is more or less. It's just different. And, uh, you know, we had some things easier. They had some things easier. You know, we had some things harder. They had some things harder. You know, we never had to even think about health insurance. It wasn't a thing that we had. You don't have to think about that. You're there's never any doubt in your head that you're going to get paid on the first and the fifteenth every month. You know, it might not be as much as you want to get paid, but you're getting paid on the first and the fifteenth. And bare minimum, man, you've always got a place to eat. You know, that defect doesn't discriminate. Like you've always got a place to eat. So there's things that we didn't have to think about that a lot of other people do have to think about. But hey, they didn't have to worry about their friends getting blown up or they didn't have to worry about if this deployment's going to be the last or, you know, some of these other things. I don't think it's more or less or anything like that. It's just like, hey, man, everybody's trying to make their way through life here. We're all trying to figure out the best way to do it. Some are more successful at it than others. But man, everybody is, it's not easy for anybody. You know, I think that's the main thing. It doesn't matter. It's maybe easier for some or the others. I think we've got it easier here in America than, you know, I was born into America, that's a lot better place to be born into than it is to be born into Afghanistan or, or born into the Congo or something like that. Like we've got a lot more opportunity here. And it's one of the reasons I freaking love this country. But, um, but man, everybody's got shit that they go through. Right. And 
Um, I always kind of smirk anytime people tell me about how hard they've got it. And it's like, man, I, I believe you that you've got it hard. I just don't think it's any harder than what anybody else has it. And I'm pretty sure somebody else has it harder. And that's even in my lowest points, I've always known, man, somebody's got it fucking harder than me. You know, and I think that's something that you can kind of use and, you know, use as fuel. Yeah, perspective is powerful. And I always try to uh, keep things in perspective when I'm starting to get, you know, I feel like I'm getting stressed. It's like, ah, this could be worse. Like, I'm not getting shot at. Nobody's dying. You know, there's the stakes aren't that high right here. And I think that uh, there's a lot of professions that give you perspective and a lot of life experiences that give you perspective. But the military does, uh, especially, you know, the combat arms, especially you guys in the soft community, even more so. Uh, you, you get a little bit of that, which helps throughout life because when people freak out in traffic or when the day's getting too hard or when they spill the co- their coffee or some pretty trivial shit, you realize, like, if this is the worst. I always like to say, if this is the worst thing that happens to me today, I'm going to be all right. And, you know, just keep mm-hmm. driving on and, and working the fuck through it. And it, and it matters. I mean, I think perspective is one of those powerful things out there because it can yep. literally, like, alter the way you go through life. Yeah. I just, uh, not to get like too much into philosophy and stuff, but man, it just, if more people, I mean, I feel like everybody's mom probably told them, don't judge a person until you walk a mile in their shoes, right? You know, don't do anything to somebody that you wouldn't want done to you. You know, just these like really simple principles that you're told as a kid growing up. And I think that we'd all do really good to relook some of those as adults, you know, and it might change some of the kind of like hostility you know it's easy to be a shithead on social media you know everybody's a lot nicer in person when you got the threat of being punched in the mouth you know uh so i think it's real easy to be a shithead on social media but uh but for the most part though i just think it would be if more people try to put their you know even in like politics and stuff like that there's a lot of policies that are proposed by politicians i don't agree with but i can empathize with where they're coming from because man look Life is a lot different if you grow up in in the city, you know, they have different needs and concerns than I had growing up in rural South Dakota and vice versa, you know, and um, it just, I think that power of just empathizing, trying to think about how some people arrive at where they're at or, or the way they think and stuff, it just helps you so much. And again, I think that's a big part of just what I do as part of a job. It's hard to tell a good story if you can't empathize with people or put yourself in their shoes. I constantly have to imagine myself in what it's like for other people in order to write about it effectively, you know, and just, it's just part of the job. But I think many people would do good to just embrace that as a life philosophy. Yeah, that's well said. And I think it's absolutely true. Um, we're coming up on an hour here. So before we wrap it up, I want to go ahead and it wouldn't be the hunt with deep podcast. If we didn't kind of whip back around and talk a little bit about, about you and, and the hunting world and, just a quick brief synopsis on kind of how you came up hunting. And then uh, I'd love to hear about that nice uh, six by, uh, I think it was a six by seven elk in Utah that you just, uh, you just killed. So yeah, kind of talk about South, South Dakota and kind of growing up in the hunting yeah. world. Well, hunt lift eat. I killed my first elk this year and it was technically a seven by six. That seventh time was at least an inch tall. Uh, <laughs> uh, the only thing I lifted today is I did, uh, 155 pound fucking shoulder presses. That was it. That's all I had time for. And I ate, uh, like two pounds of salmon and like a big bag of fucking broccoli right before I hopped on this podcast. So that was my hunt lift eat today. Um, and I'm like getting ready day. to, uh, I'm getting ready to jump out to my buddy, Mike Shea. He runs free, free range American for us. Uh, he lives out in central New York there. I'm going to go out there with my brother 
and we're going to do a little bit of fly fishing uh, on the Douglas salmon run, and we're going to do a little bit of uh, bow hunting, hopefully put a couple of deer down. Really looking forward to that. And, uh, yeah, we were talking a little bit at the beginning here. Um, I live in New Hampshire now. I live in the Northeast. Everything is so different than where I grew up in South Dakota. In South Dakota, all the fishing you do is with a traditional spin cast reel, um, and uh, you – you know, all the hunting you do is with a rifle or a shotgun, you know, shotgun for pheasants, rifle for your, uh, your deer, you know, East River, South Dakota is all whitetail, West River, South Dakota is all muleys, and then, uh, you know, turkey and, uh, and antelope out there. Those are like the main things that you hunt. You come out here, I'd never caught a salmon in my life before. I've never fished for trout before. That's like the two of the biggest things out here. You fly fish probably more than you use an actual spin cast reel. I'd never fly fished in my life. Uh, and a lot of the hunting is done from a tree stand. And I'd never been in a tree stand in my life until last year. A lot of the hunting you do is with a bow. I'd never touched a bow in my life until last year. And now I'm completely hooked. I'm, I'm all in on this, like, northeastern style. And really, you could call it eastern style, right? It's not just the northeast, but everybody in the east. It's a lot of bows. It's a lot of fly rods. And, uh, and so I love kind of learning about this and learning this new way to approach the outdoors. And I still love going out west. And that's... So I did with that elk out there in northeastern Utah. It was I took my uh, it was my grandpa's and my dad's. And now it's mine. Uh, this old thirty out six Enfield thirty out six, and uh, I'm actually writing a story about it. It's got some cool history, and um, I think this elk was probably the biggest thing it ever killed. But it's just you know this old thirty out six with uh, you know an old Bushnell Sport View scope on it. It was the same thing my grandpa probably bought from the Kmart back in. Who knows when, you know, I just like the idea of looking through the same glass and uh, racking around with the same rifle that, you know, my grandpa and my dad did, you know, I didn't want to change anything. And it certainly would have made my job a lot easier um, out there on this elk hunt had I had a little bit more modern scope, at least on that thing. But, um, and then when we got out there to the butt stock, the extender on it, the glue gave somehow and well in transit and so my buttstock was basically cut in half when I showed up and I had to go try to just get one of those rubber slip-on recoil pads and that didn't get me all the way back out but it got me some of the way back out and now I just got to shoot kind of with my head really cocked back to get the proper eye relief on that Bushnell sport view and uh man I made this hunt a lot harder on myself than I need to and I, you know I'm showing up in Salt Lake to the Black Rifle comp you know They've got some of the most high-end doggone rifles you've ever seen in your life and, and the glass to go with it. And, you know, they, they they gave me the option to take something. And I just, I was really in love with the idea of, I'd never taken an elk before. I wanted to do it with this rifle. I wanted to write a story about it and, um, you know, all of that. And so we went out and we made it happen. It took me, I got the elk on, you know, we were hunting early every day, come back for about a two-hour lunch break and then go back out. Um, you know, it was, like I said, this was not, like, this super elite, like, you know, public land, I'm going to hike 20 miles in and then really rough it. Like, we were at a lodge, it, it was a massive ranch out there, and I had a guide, and, you know, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing, um, you know, so I probably needed that guide, but we went out, and it was all fair chase, and every, it wasn't, like, a fenced-in place or anything like that, but it was private land, and, you know, um, you know, it took us a good three days of hard hunting, you know, we walked, we walked a lot of miles still, and it was all up and down those Utah mountains and, and hills. And, um, and then finally on that, uh, evening of the third day, um, ended up getting something that was, uh, a good bowl. And, uh, yeah, we put her down. 
got one shot in and that first shot it killed it but we put another one in uh it you know ran uphill probably 50 yards and then we put another one in just to make sure and uh yeah that was all and yeah it was very very exciting i couldn't believe it. i i never grown up in south dakota you know i didn't you know, we have limited elk tags in South Dakota. You, It's like a once-in-a-lifetime draw in South Dakota. And even then, if you draw it, it's like you got to have some money to be able to actually go out and hunt this thing. And uh, so growing up in South Dakota, like my family didn't have money. It just, it never even crossed my thought process that I'd ever kill an elk. And so going out there and doing that, it kind of felt like, man, I made it. You know, I just killed a freaking, not just an elk, but a big old fucking seven-by-six bull elk, you know, and, and just... Yeah, I was so happy. It just, you know, no feeling in the world to describe it. And how many, and just knowing too, how many elk hunters go out season after season after season trying to get one of these things. And I got one not only on my first trip, but on my third day. And again, I'm not, again, I don't want to make it sound like I walked freaking 20 or 50 miles into public lands and did stayed in a tent the whole time and all this other stuff. It wasn't that experience, but we still hunted hard. It was not. I wouldn't call it easy. It wasn't the hardest elk hunt you could ever do, but it wasn't easy either. And I'm super proud of it. You know, I'm, I'm really excited that we took this elk down and that I'm, you know, going to have a freezer full of elk meat. So I got to go pick it up still. <laughs> yeah. Derek, you going to say something or are you, is your internet still messed up? I'm saying something. I think it's 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 super awesome that you use that uh that legacy rifle and scope and the, I think it gets lost in today with with these new calibers. Motherfucker! <laughs> hey, we can hear you. You're, you're you're doing great. Ah, okay. All right. So I think it's Luke can edit all this shit out. I guess. Yeah, I can. I can hear. Or maybe he can't hear here. I don't know. I don't know. Well, <laughs> anyways, I think I think I can kind of jump in. With, wait, no, never mind. Jesus, I'm about to just kick him off. All right. Oh. So what what I think he was trying to say is, in today's day and age, especially, and I think we can all kind of fall into this, is the you want know, the Gucci gear. You got to have the nicest rifle, the nicest glass, the nicest scope, and there's something really rewarding um, about having that the history and the the story behind the fact that you were able to do that with the the rifle that your granddad and that your dad hunted with you know i grew up hunting with an old open sight winchester 3030 that was my great granddaddy's and you know that's cool and like i've got some nicer rifles now and I, that's what i hunt with but like i just had a, uh, my first kid and like my son will hunt with that his first year will hopefully be with that same 3030 and uh it, it's cool and i, I think we get lost in a lot of the the other stuff these days versus just kind of real remembering like why we're doing it and a lot of it's the tradition and the story and you know the familial bond that comes in with with hunting and, and the all of that yeah i you know and i'm not like this purist that only hunts with old rifles or anything like that it was just that this was the first elk i wanted to do something special there was a story to be told about it and you know the next time i go out i'll probably you know, after this, I'll probably just do bow because, you know, bow's the next challenge after you put it down. But, you know, I'm not opposed to taking a nice rifle out with me on a hunt at all, right? It was just this particular hunt. And, yeah, there was there's a cer certain amount of romance. It's just like I don't write all my write, uh, articles on a typewriter or something like that. But I do have a typewriter, and every once in a while it's cool to 
go and bang out a short letter to, you know, my sister or something on it. It's just, there is that connection of just something that's very analog, you know, just very analog, very from a different time. And um, I think there's something to be said about that. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not some purist either. You know, I was out there wearing like the typical like Sitka camo setup and all of that other, you know, it's, you know, I got this, I got a PSE bow behind me. It's not like I'm slumming it over here with stuff, but for that particular hunt, I, you know, I wanted to do something special. And again, I think it, you know, Hey, I'm sitting here telling the story right now on this podcast, right? It makes it kind of a cool story. So, and again, it's, I think about things like that all the time is like, what kind of story will this tell? And, you know, I probably, you know, that rifle is getting older, you know, I probably won't do a bunch more hunts with it. But, you know, my kids someday, they'll, yeah, like you just said with your your old Winchester 3030, like, you know, my kids will probably go out with this at some point and get their kill in with it. You know, it might just be that thing that everybody gets one turn on the rifle and you'll kill one deer with it or one something with it. And, you know, that'll be it. But I will say the caliber, though, 30-06, I 100%, maybe this will wrangle up some people. I'll take that. Th- I still think the 30-06 is the ultimate North American big game hunting round. All around, if I could pick one round that I had to hunt everything in North America with, it would be the 30-06 with like a 185-grain bullet. Yeah, Carter and I b- both have hunted. My first rifle, my personal first rifle was a 30-06, and then Carter runs the 30-06 now. Yeah, I love yeah. it. It's a yeah. great round. 6.5 Creedmoor is a fine rifle. It's very flat shooting. I agree with everything that everybody says about it. I'll still take a 30-06. Thank you, sir. I just bought a 6.5, so I'm, I'm in both camps. I, I think having tools for the toolbox, man, just you got to have a bunch of different wrenches. Yep, exactly, exactly. Well, uh, hey, guys, thanks for having me on. Yeah, Marty, we really appreciate it, man. You, you got any closing thoughts you want to wrap up with? Um, yeah, sure, man. We got into a lot of different stuff here, um, uh, which is really cool. I, I kind of love this format where we can just see where things go and – that's awesome. You know, um, uh, I, I guess my biggest thing is just, um, you know, we've got a lot of really fantastic reporters and writers over at coffee or diet. Highly recommend everybody go, uh, make that a part of their regular reading lineup. And we recently launched a print magazine as well that comes out quarterly. Um, and that's, I'm pretty stoked about that, but, uh, that's kind of my plug. Um, and, uh, you know, outside of that, I think that just the big thing for anybody. And I try to, you know, with you being a guy that's kind of looking at life after the military and anybody else that's listening to this, it's such a, just go into it, man. I, I, when I got out, I thought, you know, I had that solid pace plan set up. I had everything planned out. I had spreadsheets. I was super organized with everything. And it was just like, man, I burned through E by like week two. It just like plan. And that's to say, that doesn't mean don't plan. Plan, definitely. Try to be as organized as you can about it. Once you, But just know going into that transition that it will be a transition. You probably won't be the same person on the other side of it. And if, you're, if you are still the same person on the other side of this transition, whenever that is, you probably did something wrong. You probably didn't let that past life go. You don't ever need to be a, ashamed of your service or anything like that. But man, you're still a human and we should continue to evolve. I'm not the same person I was 10 years ago. And I hope I'm not the same person 10 years from now that I am today. And I think that that's a really amicable goal to have. And if you just go into transition, knowing like, Hey, I'm going to change, I'm going to grow. I'm going to probably find new things that I'm interested in, or, you know, things are going to happen. I think that's a good way to approach it. And whether you go into storytelling or writing or filmmaking or whatever, or, 
you know, running your local freaking LL Bean outlet. I don't know. You know, whatever your whatever your your path takes you, it's like just you don't need to have an MOS that translates to the civilian life. You just gotta use the same tools that you used to be, hopefully successful in the military. They'll still apply out of the military. That drive to try to be better than the people then to your left and your right, that motivation, that organization, that ability to plan. Man, a fucking op order works really well in a variety of situations. Every one of my reporters, before they go out on assignment, they provide a little one-page five Ws. Think about some of these formats. You don't have to use all that sort of stuff, but like that's just, I, I guess, just on that transition message, because I think everything that we talked about today is essentially just recapping what my transition has been like. I really only feel like recently I've kind of completed this transition. Uh, and that doesn't mean that I'm done growing or changing or learning, but it kind of feels like I've put that, like I fully civilianized myself. Like I fully transitioned out of the military. And um, that's, I think that takes different time for different people. But if that's the goal, just understand that it's not this super direct, you know, you're not going to shoot an azimuth and walk it straight. Right. You end up having to do resection a couple of times, know that going into it. And I think, you know, regardless of where you go, or if you do something like me or something completely different, you know, it'll be all right. Just don't quit. Same rules in the military. Don't fucking quit, you know? So, yeah, that's that's my closing thought. No, that's great stuff and super applicable to me right now as I look at my last, you know, couple years in. And uh, well-received, man. I, I really appreciate it. Carter, you want to wrap us up real quick? Yeah. Hey, Marty, before we take off, uh, where can folks come find you on social media? So I have a super easy name to spell and all my social media handles are at Marty Scovlin Jr. <laughs> um, you might just want to tell people to click whatever link you guys do in your uh, podcast notes, but it's M-A-R-T-Y-S-K-O-V-L-U-N-D-J-R. Uh, that's pretty much what all of my social media handles are. And then, like I said, Coffee or Die Magazine. It's at Coffee or Die Mag on most social media and then CoffeeOrDie.com. You can buy our print magazine on BlackRifleCoffee.com. Um, and, uh, yeah, like I said, we've got a bunch of, um, and, and particularly for your audience, check out FreeRangeAmerican.us. That is our sister publication that we just recently started that's very hunting, fishing, adventure-oriented. Uh, so, yeah, we've got a lot of great storytellers that we're doing. Um, and, uh, yeah, those are, those are all the different places. Um, I'm just not comfortable giving out my personal cell phone number to the entire audience. So that's, we won't go that far. Personal email address is off, off bounds too. You get some weird stuff from people. Yeah, no, I, I, understand. I definitely understand that. I get some weird Instagram <laughs> messages sometimes. But hey, man, I, I really appreciate it. I'd love to have you back on in the future because I feel like yeah. we still have a lot to talk about, uh, especially yeah. uh, kind of with some of your hunting jersey journey. It'd be cool to catch up at the end of the season and see how the season turned out for you. Sounds great. Anytime, guys. All right. Thanks, man. We'll, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up.